Hi, and welcome to the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson. Now, I'm not a trained theologian, nor do I have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God. I wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of Christianity, and more specifically, the church. This podcast is the collection of a journey to dig much deeper into the realm of faith, and reology is the study of the do-over, and it's founded on the philosophy and principle of stopping and thinking about what I'm doing and why, especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what all this has to do with me. So, I'm a child of the 80s, what I believe to be one of the greatest decades of all time. You know, we had some pretty rad music and totally awesome clothes and tubular hairstyles and movies that didn't gag me with a spoon. Sorry. But seriously, though, some pretty great movies did come out of the 80s. Now, one movie that didn't quite make it as an Oscar nominee, but still an 80s classic, was the movie Can't Buy Me Love. This was the typical story of a person desperately wanting to be someone else, only to be eventually find out that they had become someone they didn't really want to be. Ronald, the main character, who was played by young Patrick Dempsey, was the nerdy, smart teenager who, of course, was anything but popular. While hanging around his other nerdy friends at the loser table at lunch, he would dream of being popular and dating his dream girl, Cindy. When an unfortunate event happens where Cindy needs to replace her mom's ruined outfit, good old Ronald sweeps in to save the day with a thousand bucks, which apparently was the price to replace the wine-stained outfit. But there were strings attached to Ronald's offer. For repayment, Ronald would want Cindy to pretend to date him, thus propelling him out of nerd status and into popular status. Reluctantly, she agrees and his climb up the social ladder begins. Unfortunately, though, for old Ronald, his newfound popularity went straight to his head, and his path to immortality left a trail of collateral damage in its wake. He eventually sees that he has become someone unrecognizable. He has turned into a person that really nobody wants to be around, not his old friends or his new ones. You know, this is a familiar story. It's a very human story, something that a lot of people go through. As I've mentioned before in both the first episode and in the book, there's this Latin phrase. I just love it. It's the phrase temet noche, which means know thyself. The ancient Greeks, they used this phrase as a foundation of living life, and it was the building block of living a happy and fulfilled life. Everything started there. And for those who don't know themselves or for those who might have forgot who they are, like Ronald, there's a technical term that we use for this situation, and it's called identity crisis. It's when we start to question who we are, and then we make moves in the wrong directions to find out. I have no doubt that most people have gone through this in some form or fashion in their lives. I mean, a lot of people go through it in middle school, no doubt maybe even as late as high school. And shoot, some adults are actually living in identity crisis right now. Now, a spiritual identity crisis is when we live our lives as someone other than what God has in mind. And that's the type of identity crisis that I want to talk about here. I've titled this episode, I Am Not the Church, But Something Much More. And I did that for a reason. 
a lot of Christians have been living a very similar spiritual identity crisis life, and for some time. As I've already discussed, you know, there's a major switch that came to Christianity way back in the fourth century. A switch where the term ecclesia, which was being used to describe Christians and what they were commanded to be and go do, a switch to the term of church, which was used to describe a religion, a building, which was the center of that religion, and an event, which was the main thing that was done. And also, as I've discussed, those two terms, they are not the same thing. We've been taught that they are, but they're not, not at all. Christianity suffered a major identity crisis that started in the fourth century. And it took guys like William Tyndall a couple hundred years ago to start the process and conversation of trying to separate those two terms, that they were completely different from one another. If you need some reference on this, I'd suggest you go back and listen to the very first episode of this podcast, or even check out the book that I wrote. You'll be able to learn the facts of the history of how church, the term church, came to be known as church, and basically how Christianity has morphed from what we see in the book of Acts in our Bibles to what we typically have in our modern world. But for time purposes, I'm not going to go that deep, obviously, but I'd like to sum things up, and I'll say that, I'll do that by saying this. The English word church, as I said, these are two different words here, but the English word church does not come from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the Greek word that's used in our Bibles in the New Testament. So basically, it's kind of a misinterpretation. And technically speaking, it would be labeled as a mistransliteration. Now, when it comes to taking an old ancient language from a very old and a very different culture and trying to translate it into a modern time, there are two main ways of doing this. The first is a literal translation. And that's when we can take a very old and ancient word and we can translate it to its equivalent word here in the 21st century. For instance, we may see a word in ancient Greek that means goat. Well, the great news is, for us in modern times, we still have goats around. So no problem in translating that. And that would be a literal translation. The second way is transliteration. And if we're looking at a Greek word that means a specific type of food, but we don't have that type of food in our modern world anymore, we don't. We've got to try to find something that's an equivalent, something that closely fits. Like, for instance, maybe they had a type of bread in ancient times that was wrapped around a type of meat, and it was baked, and we don't have that type of food anymore. So we'd have to try to come up with something close, like maybe, I don't know, pot pie or a calzone or <laughs> hot pocket. That's transliteration. It's not exactly the same, but, you know, it's close enough. When Jesus used the, worm, the, the term ekklesia, this Greek word, to describe what he was sent to build in Matthew 16, he was referring to something that everyone in that day and everyone in that culture knew exactly about. For them, they knew that it was a, a term that meant more along the lines of a specific appointed delegation of citizens to assist in civil and governmental issues, a group that was actively engaged in helping its community. And this would be Jesus' version of that. 
Originally, ecclesia was a, a Greek form of like democracy. It was an idea of having normal citizens actively engaged in town meetings and helping make decisions for the community and having a voice and direction for even the whole nation. And this idea was revolutionary. The Romans adopted this Greek idea. And even our own country, our own democracy is based on this term, ecclesia, the Greek's version. But, so Jesus would use this term on purpose. He could have used any word that he wanted, but what he had in mind was of the same stuff. And so he described it to his disciples this way. His followers, God's family, would be a variation of the secular ecclesia, but it would be his ecclesia. And his ecclesia would be used in a very great way to accomplish great things. And they did for over 300 years. But once Christianity was organized into modern religion in Rome via its emperor Constantine in the 4th century, it ceased to be the ecclesia and it would become something else, eventually what we know as the church. The English word church comes from the Greek possessive phrase kyriakon, which translates as of the Lord or the Lord's. It's a possessive phrase, and it's only used twice in the whole New Testament for phrases like the Lord's Supper and the Day of the Lord. A phrase that became very popular in the early days of Christianity after it had become an organized religion was the phrase kyriakon doma, which meant the house of the Lord. This phrase has... Actually, it's been around for a long time. It's been actually around since the days of the Old Testament even. And it was used to signify Israel, which was God's people or his house. And then also like the synagogue, a physical building, his house. And once again, it became popular once cathedrals were built to house Christians in this new organized religion. And these cathedrals were called Doma or Kyriakon Doma, the full phrase, God's house. And since cathedrals were the central part of Christianity, the phrase became very popular. And this phrase was passed down through the centuries to Latin and Scottish and Dutch and German and even English, eventually dropping the doma part, shortening to just kyriakon or kirk or kirk or kirch, and then finally church. So this English word, church, it's been around. Unfortunately, though, not during Matthew 16. We know that the word church is being primarily and has been primarily used for a long time to, to represent three main things, right? To signify a religion, to describe an event, and a type of building. But for the last couple of years, leaders have tried to throw in a fourth definition, which would be that the church means people as well. So now we have the church going to church to meet in a church to represent the church. I mean, no wonder our culture thinks that church is kind of out of touch. I mean, it really doesn't make much sense. But I will say that I, I do understand why leaders have made a point to kind of point this out and kind of go in this direction. The underlying thoughts are that the real meaning to it all, to Christianity, 
it, it can't be about a religion. It can't be about an event to go to, and it can't be about a building to meet in. And that it has to be more than that. It has to be, it has to be about the people. And with that, I completely agree. But if we're using the same word to mean all four things, but yet somehow the people definition needs to stand out from the other three, I mean, that mindset, it's just not going to work. It's super confusing. It starts to sound made up as if we're like, we're just making things up as we go along here. And it starts to sound as if Christians don't really know what we're even saying and probably rightfully so. So technically speaking, Christians are not the church. Calling Christians the church, it's not technically right, it's not historically right, it's not linguistically right, and it's definitely not biblically right either. I used to think that maybe we should just get rid of this English word church. Just Let's just get rid of it. But I've come to understand that, you know, it does have its place. It has its place in, in things. And I've, I've tried to say this as much as I possibly can. I am not against the concept of church. I'm pro-church. But I also know that this concept, the concept of church, it's, it's not from God. I mean, it is from man. It is man-made. And, you know, it can be a very, very good thing. It can be a great, effective tool or a resource for Christians, for the ecclesia. But to limit Christians' identity with the label of the word church, I mean, that's just wrong. It's not what Jesus had in mind when he described to his followers in Matthew 16 of what he had come to build and die for. Instead, he had in mind a very specific idea of a delegation of people that would go out in the world and make a difference with their lives, just like the secular version of Ecclesia, only this would be his version. He wasn't thinking of a movement of a religion. He wasn't thinking of an event. He wasn't thinking of a physical building. And those things all have their place, but they'll never take the place of the true house that God has built into our lives. Just like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3, the old emphasis of temple has gone because we are now the temple. As I said earlier, you know, I can halfway understand why church leaders want to throw people, you know, us into the mix of the definition of church. I, I can, I, I can, I can even see it as a, a pure motive. The fact is, we're not. We're something much more than that. And it's almost to me like a lazy way to define this people movement. And it's the wrong way. I think maybe instead, we should start to try to teach the true identity of Christians. Let's start teaching that going to church is great and fine, and doing so in a church building is fine. And if you want to do that in the name of church, that's fine, I guess, as well. But that is not our identity. We have been a set aside for so much more. And Jesus came to build a body of believers into a finely tuned movement that he would use to reach a lost world. And he believed in it so much that he even died for it. For us as Christians, followers of Jesus, to attain a rightful, that rightful identity of the ecclesia, 
we need to start by understanding that the word church and the word ecclesia are two completely different things. Church and ecclesia are two different words. The church can be a good resource for the ecclesia, but it's not the ecclesia itself. It's just not. Church is great, but it can never do what the ecclesia is supposed to do. It will never be able to achieve what Jesus had in mind. So it's time to really to stop this identity crisis. It's time for us to become exactly what Jesus died for and start calling ourselves exactly who we're supposed to be, the delegation of God, a delegation that was set apart to serve our communities, our nation, our world, and ultimately to make disciples of Jesus. I'd like to encourage you to be willing to rethink, research, and rediscover the mysteries of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia, us. And what I'm asking you to do, it's really not an easy task, and nor is it popular. And some might even say, hey, just go to church and listen to the sermon, and, you know, everything will kind of work its way out. Unfortunately, that's just not nearly enough. I encourage you to take a hold of this faith in God with both of your hands and claim it for your own. Do not take my word for it. Investigate God and get to know him on a much deeper level. But just remember that it all starts with a willing spirit to stop and think. If you spend any time learning about this Jesus in any of the four books dedicated to his life in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll quickly see that his message revolved around this very sane mindset. Stop and think. Mm-hmm.